Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This message comes from Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. It's rhubarb season right now. It is. We've got some in the garden here. <laughs> Lovely. Is it closhed or uncloshed? Oh, don't ask me that. You know, has it got a cover on it to keep it all nice and pink? Ah, uh, yes. That's very fancy. <laughs> it loses its pinkness quite quickly. Yeah, it does. There's some trick to bringing that back, and I can't remember what it is because I'm, I'm not a gardener. No, me neither. I love to look at gardens, but I don't profess any expertise in it at all. I do love rhubarb crumble, apple crumble, that's good too. Mm. My mum used to make great apple crumble. Mine too. This is a little known fact of mine, that I am actually a foodie, I adore food. Oh dear, you're not very fat at all. You don't look like a foodie. (laughs) Never trust a thin cook. (laughs) Hello, I'm Minnie Driver, and welcome to Mini Questions. I've always loved Proust's questionnaire. It was originally an 18th century parlor game meant to reveal an individual's true nature. But with so many questions, there wasn't really an opportunity to expand on anything. So I took the format of Proust's questionnaire and adapted what I think are seven of the most important questions you could ever ask someone. They are, when and where were you happiest? What is the quality you like least about yourself? What relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? What question would you most like answered? What person, place, or experience has shaped you the most? What would be your last meal? And can you tell me something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? The more people we ask, the more we begin to see what makes us similar and what makes us individual. I've gathered a group of really remarkable people who I'm honored and humbled to have had a chance to engage with. My guest today is Tony Blair. 
the former Prime Minister for the UK. He is to date the longest-serving Labour Prime Minister and broke an 18-year marathon of Conservative government when he came to power in 1997. He studied law at Oxford and told me he never intended to go into politics. I have to say, I was very interested about having the opportunity to speak to a former world leader. And one of the things that really struck me was the starting point idea of commitment to service and social progress can't help but be altered by the actual machinations of politics. Tony Blair is a Christian by faith, and I very much enjoy discussing, amongst other things, the nexus between spirituality or organized religion and science and reason. Where and when were you happiest? So when people ask you whether you're happy or not, it can refer to a period or it can refer to a moment. The periods in my life in which I were most happy were probably in my sort of early 30s as I was really starting in politics and beginning a family and and I had everything to kind of look forward to. When you were an MP? Yeah, I'd become an MP. I was kind of climbing the political ladder. Things were fascinating, but they weren't too pressured. You hadn't got to the point where the politics started to really cut into your life. And we were starting a family, so that was great. And, you know, that was a very happy time in my life. Strangely, this last year, because I've been able to spend real time in one place, the longest time I've spent in one place for decades, it's allowed me to focus on the work that I do with my institute, which is a not-for-profit institute that does work in Africa, the Middle East and other places. But even though I've not been able to travel there in the same way, you know, I've found it actually quite a good way of working. And it's given me some periods of reflection when normally I don't get any. So as a period of my life, it's not been unhappy. But then I think you can define happiest moments of your life. And those for me, which is probably a bad thing, but they're all about fulfillment. I mean, I could say it's the moment my first child was born or my first grandchild, and, and that's true. But when I think of you know things that gave me an immediate rush of happiness, I, they're usually around fulfillment, you know, getting a scholarship to school or getting into university, winning the nomination for my constituency, which was a big moment. Yeah, that must have been amazing. Uh, that was uh, completely unexpected and was the last seat in the country to select a candidate in 83. And if I hadn't been selected, I would never have been leader in 1994, never been prime minister in 1997. But you held that seat for a long time as well. Uh, yeah, I guess 25 years. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite a long time. But then there were particular moments because with prime minister, the highs and lows, but the highs are very high. The signing of the Good Friday Agreement on Ireland, the winning of the Olympics. So it's happiness is fulfillment. But if you want happiness as a period of your life in which you're experiencing just day to day, the nearest I would ever get to contentment, it would probably be those two periods, really, yes. Not when I was Prime Minister. Not when you are Prime Minister, yes. It's like when people ask you whether you enjoyed being Prime Minister, I always think... Well, it's like asking, do you enjoy giving birth? You know, no, not... Not really. Like, I really loved having a baby, but I think that's actually an excellent analogy. <laughs> Not having been prime minister, but having given birth. <laughs> Did you enjoy being on stage? Mm, I used to have a bucket at the side of the stage that I would throw up in yeah. when I was in the West End. I was so terrified. There's something great about it, though. But I'm interested about this premium that we put on happiness, because I wonder if it becomes a catch-all 
And rather like love, it's, it's actually made up of a lot of other different things. If love is made up of, I don't know, respect, honesty, shared ideas, communion, community. Because I was happy on the stage, but it was also awful. But I think that's what's, what's interesting about it. But that's why you can define happiness as points of fulfillment. So when you came off the stage having given a, a great performance or a performance you were satisfied with, that's a form of happiness. I, I'm a, an optimistic person, but I don't think I'm happy in that kind of relaxed <laughs> sense of happy. That's so funny because I think I'm a happy pessimist. I think that I'm actually quite pessimistic, but really genuinely often surprised about how well things turn out. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if it's also like, if it's a privilege from where we're born and where we grow up and the privileges that we have in our life, it's interesting about the notion of what you grow out of. I think about that a lot. And certain friends who've had extremely different experiences in their life who happiness was really hard fought and they look at it differently. They look at it as this prize in a way that they won despite the hardships that they experienced. But that does give them a sense of fulfillment. Yeah. And I think the best thing in life is to wake up with a sense of purpose and go to bed counting your blessings. And I think you tend to be more happy when the, there is that purpose. You know, you feel you're not just living, but you're living for something. And when you, you've got to the stage where you're able, despite all your challenges, and your mishaps, to say, but I'm in fact blessed. Think of all the many blessings that have been bestowed upon me. And I think one of the things you try to do as you get older is you try to come to a more spiritually balanced place where you're you can accept the things in life that are really hard um, because you appreciate there are so many people who have it harder mm -hmm. and you've in fact been generously gifted in many ways. Just last thing on happiness, because it's, it's really interesting talking to you about that. Do you think that it was something when you were prime minister that in a way you couldn't expect it in any way, shape or form? So it becomes sort of collateral damage to the position that you're in, that you can't really seek happiness when you're governing? Like, or are you trying to seek a greater happiness for a country so that sort of fulfills that part of your psyche? Yeah, no, the truth of the matter is the responsibility is so great and you're taking decisions the whole time that are extremely difficult and you're subject to an, an, an enormous amount of criticism. Now, by the way, you know, as my wife always used to say to me, look, it's voluntary. Don't complain about it, you know, and that is actually a very sensible <laughs> attitude. But, you know, the sense of responsibility and the harshness occasionally of the environment, you know, I, I found it hard to be happy. But as I say, there were those moments because you do have such responsibility where something actually works, you know, where we, we were three, four days trying to negotiate that Good Friday agreement in Ireland. And after all those years and you actually get it, then that is that's something that must have been amazing. Yeah, there are very few moments, though, which, as it were, where the joy is unalloyed. It's usually accompanied by a heavy downside. What quality do you like least about yourself? That I'm never satisfied, that I'm always restless. I used to think for a long time that was a, a strength, and I think it's really a weakness. Do you think that you've addressed that with COVID keeping you in one place and that restlessness actually being stopped? Do you think that maybe you've learned to like it? No. 
No. <laughs> no, I, I haven't learned to like it. I'm ambivalent about it because I think that to a certain degree, if you have an element of restlessness, it keeps you striving. Yeah. And in the striving, you can achieve more. But I think it makes you a difficult person to live with. I think it, you miss dimensions of life by being constantly restless and in search. I mean, it's a quality I've come to accept about myself. But whereas I used to think it was a great spur, and in some ways it is, I think you should be a big and strong enough character to be able to achieve without that. Well, it sounds like you did quite a lot during COVID. No, I felt that with our institute, we really took it to a new level. So I was very pleased at that. I don't, I don't think you need to be perpetually unsatisfied in order to succeed. And I've subsequently in my life met a lot of people who have managed to succeed in their life goals by being very focused and determined and hardworking and apply yourself. And all of that is no one I've ever met. Even if they make it look easy, it's never is. No. But they've managed to do that at the same time as, you know, just having a more relaxed attitude to life. I know. It's how do you stoke the fire and keep that forward momentum without I think being overrun by that and not being able to focus, maybe it's just the nuance of being alive. The thing I often wonder when I meet people is, you know, is it something natural or is it something that events in people's lives have pushed them to? I don't know. I think to be, to be able to be calm in the face of whatever life brings you is, I think that's a great quality. Do you think you've cultivated that as you've got older? I've tried to, but, but, but as I say, not really very successfully. Maybe the living is in the trying, you know what I mean? Maybe there's no actual arrival point. But it's like the, the other thing I always think is that is the Greeks always had it right when they talked about hubris and nemesis. That's a very interesting aspect of life that you should always as well remain rooted in a certain degree of humility about your own position, your own capabilities, because... There's no occasion that I've ever come across in any part of my life or the life of people I've known where I've not, I've never since has followed hubris. It's an interesting, it's a big life lesson. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I'm late. I'm late. Very important Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from Undercover Tourist. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from Undercover Tourist and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with Undercover Tourist now and save. UndercoverTourist.com AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. 
It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Or what relationship, real or fictionalized, defines love for you? So I thought about this, and I thought about it, what is its purest form? I mean, I would say parent and child is a very obvious answer to give, and now I'm a grandparent. It's the same feeling of unconditional love. I mean, what you have for your child is something I think that is not replicable. I mean, there's, there's nothing that comes near it in its unconditionality. But it is, to some degree also, it, it's bound up with yourself. So in its purest form, I would say the, the love that I have seen, when I've seen people who dedicate their lives to looking after others in really difficult circumstances, and I think, for example, of the nuns I met in Africa looking after HIV AIDS children, many of whom at that time would die, but they would care for them through you know, the last years of their life. And that love was unconditional, but also selfless. I mean, they didn't have a, a family relationship, but they were able to give those children complete and unconditional love. And usually in circumstances where their parents had died, and I, I remember because Shri and I visited a, an orphanage where the nuns looked after these children. And I remember coming away and literally weeping afterwards because I just felt there's nothing that could ever come close to that purity. Is the distillation of love then, for you, is that in its most unsullied form where it's most meaningful? Because you're right, there's a huge difference and yet they're both worthwhile, the love for your children and the unconditional love of a nurse for a very sick child. Yeah, and the love for a stranger. So that is to be able to bestow that love on a stranger. I mean, you know, obviously they're not, they're not strange when you start to look after them, but the fact is they're not connected with you by family. They're not friends. They're not people who've done anything for you. I mean, that is selfless as well as unconditional. One of the things I worry about sometimes is whether with the passing of religious belief, we will lose something of that, hmm. you know, that selfless love that I think is often found in people of faith. I don't think faith's going anywhere. I hope not, but I, I think it's difficult. I think organized religion is under so much pressure and religious belief is subject to so much cynicism and criticism as well as an inquiry as to whether it's consistent with science. I agree. I mean, I think that that's the nexus of whatever the new Venn diagram of new physics or science and religion. I mean, I think it's fascinating and interesting to see what that will look like. But maybe it also forces us to do a bit more self-inquiry and it not be quite so externally structured, but rather to find it within yourself? Yes, that's true. But the question is whether at its best religious faith should assist you in that. Mm -hmm. I think 
the question really is whether in this century, because I think organized religion will continue to have its severe problems, whether it's possible to distill and capture the essence of spirituality if organized religion declines, or does it just become mm. just humanism? My school practiced comparative religion. At Bedales, each summer, a collective or a person of a different faith would come and live at the school and they would be available to chat to and to talk to at any time. So we had Franciscan monks and Buddhist monks and Catholic nuns and Hasidic Jews. Like It was absolutely fascinating. And what I realized in talking to all of them was that that yes, their particular form of faith had cultivated the spirituality, but I felt so much that it was already there and they would be doing it anyway. They would be doing it on the side of a hill or in their own garden or at the butchers. <laughs> well, maybe it's that they came to that spiritual understanding and enlightenment through their organized religion. I think what, what is interesting is that at a certain point, you know, if you study comparative religion, you realize that there are certain things that all the faiths have in common. Yes. And the question is, as people apply the force of reason and science to organized religion, does it just obliterate organized religion or does organized religion adjust and find its place? Because in the end, what organized religion should be is a gateway to greater spiritual understanding and an understanding of your own self. So do you believe the latter? Do you believe that it's possible for organized religion to shapeshift and to accommodate the science and reason? I'm not sure. I think it's possible. I think religious faith can go in two directions. It can either go in the direction of reaching out across the boundaries of faith in the belief that there are these things in common, or it can go what I would call in political terms, your core vote strategy. In other words, you turn in in yourself and you, you become a sort of fundamentalist construct. Everything has its shadow, even, well, particularly the really beautiful things. Maybe that always has to be there so that you keep choosing it. You keep choosing the light. You keep choosing the good stuff. Yes. As people learn more about different religious faiths as well, I think they, I mean, certainly this has happened to me. I'm a practicing Christian, but I go to Israel a lot. And so I see a lot of people of the Jewish faith, obviously because of the work I do of the Muslim faith to Hinduism, Buddhism. I think the question all main religious faiths struggle with today is how do they separate the essence of, of that faith and how it teaches you to live a life from the doctrine and the, the practice, which has grown up in particular cultures in particular ways that often serves as a barrier to understanding. Yeah, certainly identity politics in America for there to be common ground in a way. It's really tricky, but... I'm not a fan of identity politics. I think it's... No, we just watched it play out in real time of, of who's a fan of identity politics. But I do hope that religion can... I like the word embrace because that always has felt the fundament of, of faith, that it can embrace an evolution, which might be counterintuitive, but... Yeah, well, it's going to have to, I think, in the end. Otherwise, it won't, it, it won't connect. It won't survive. Yeah. So is there something in your life that has grown out of a personal disaster? I don't, I, I'm not sure in politics I can really, but in my personal life, I think when I was young and my father became very seriously ill when I was 10 years old, it, it more or less ended his career. And, you know, he had to be looked after by my mother for several years. And then my mother died when I was quite young. 
I think those are the things that probably set my life on a different course. Mm. Well, I think the rest of your life emerging after an incredibly painful start is something growing out of that hardship. I mean, no, no doubt conflict creates action. Yeah, and I, I think what it did for me was create a sense at a very early age that you couldn't take anything for granted. I mean, it may be that that is the only kind of upside of that uh, restless spirit fault that I talked about earlier. In politics and adversity, you know, I started supremely popular um, as a prime minister. And then, you know, obviously post 9-11 and the Iraq war and all of that, it was very difficult for me to, to come to terms with the fact that that, you know, I can say I thought I was doing the right thing, but, you know, the the unpopularity that comes then with a decision like that, you then come to terms with the fact that you're given that enormous responsibility and there is a sort of crushing element about it. And, and you, you've got to be prepared then to, to, to live with that. If you're looking at it from the point of view of someone who gets to the very top in a, in a profession, there are things that leave you with a mark afterwards that you will live with for the rest of your life. And that's coming to terms with that is also something that is beneficial. Well, I think it's exactly what you spoke about, humility of maybe seeing the panoply of our entire life and that those moments that have the spotlight thrown onto them, that we live around them. I mean, obviously, I can't speak to what that is of making decisions that affect people or affected people on such a huge level. But I think that's why it's so interesting to talk to so many different types of people because we're human and the choices that we make are the choices that we make. And I think it's interesting what you said about belief as well and going into politics. You have to have belief. You have to choose a path. One thing that I did learn about politics, but I think it's an interesting lesson in life, is that if you calculate too much, you miscalculate. In other words, when you're looking at the way your life is going to go in the future, it's often better to follow your instinct is keep relatively true to yourself because if you're always trying to calculate your next move in that very narrow way you often end up failing because the world changes in a way you didn't anticipate it's so true i worked very briefly with robert altman on a commercial for something once and i remember at lunch i had one of the best conversations i've ever had with anyone where he said that you know, your life and your decision and your belief and your commitment to what it is you're doing is this straight line. And that public opinion and zeitgeist and all these other things kind of bisect and zigzag that straight line your entire life. And, you know, he must have been 80 when we we made that commercial. And he said, never once in following the zigzag did anything really productive happen except my realizing that I should really just <laughs> don't follow the zeitgeist, just commit, commit to your line. Yeah. You know, I'm sure that I, I think that's, for me, I would never have become leader of the Labour Party if I'd, if I'd simply calculated because I definitely did not follow the traditional path to leadership. I was way out on, on the limit points and that looked like it was a, a fatal Floor, but it turned out to be then the leadership question came up when John Smith, who was the previous leader of the Labour Party, tragically died. And the, the leadership of the Labour Party came up after John's death. It was then suddenly I was the right person, the right place, the right time. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. I'm late. I'm late for a very important date. Time is running out to score adult theme park tickets at child prices from undercover tourists. This summer, make your Walt Disney World vacation more affordable than ever. Escape into a place where magic has the power to transport you into stunning worlds and your favorite stories for less. Buy from undercover tourists and authorized seller and link to official Walt Disney World apps so you can add on Genie Plus and Lightning Lane upgrades easy. Book your adult theme park tickets at child prices with undercover tourists now and save. UndercoverTourist.com Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. So this is a this is a broad question, but what person, place, or experience most altered your life? And I'm going to say, apart from becoming prime minister, because it's too it's too easy when you have such an extraordinarily rarefied experience. <laughs> <laughs> Probably meeting someone who became my mentor at university, who, who was actually a, a, a reverend, a, a, a priest, a guy called Peter Thompson, who was an Australian and who was a remarkable character and teacher. And he changed the direction of my life because, first of all, before I met him, I wasn't interested in politics. Secondly, I didn't really have any ambition to do anything in the world, as it were, as opposed to, you know, become a lawyer or settle down or whatever. And he put my life on a different path by showing me, really, that unless you lived your life with some sense of obligation to try and do your best, and do good in the world, then it wasn't falling short of what you should be. Do you think it's a confluence of sensing something in somebody else that you speak to, that, that a, a mentor sees something in their mentee and speaks to that part of them before they've perhaps even seen it themselves? Or is it them, is it them just sharing knowledge that they've, they've paid attention to in the world around them because they've been around longer than we have? Like, do you think that he saw something or do you think that it's what he was saying through his observances ignited something in you? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I actually have asked myself that question quite often. I don't really know the answer. I mean, I think he saw something that he felt should be developed, maybe. I, and he had this impact on a lot of the people around me. You know, I had a strange time at university because I, I never felt I really made the most of my time at university in many ways. For someone who ended up as prime minister, 
I think the only time I ever went to the Oxford Union was once to listen to a speech by Michael Heseltine, bizarrely. <laughs> oh my God, that's like the worst. That's the worst one. Well, no, it was quite interesting, actually. I was not interested at all in politics. I was actually trying to get close to a particular girl at the time because I wasn't interested in politics at all at the time. What did you read at university? Law. Ah. I mean, I had a very good tutor and very good tutors and everything, but I think law wasn't really a subject for me at university. I, I enjoyed it much more when I practised it. I would have been better probably with, with history. But I, I, so I didn't go to the Oxford Union. I didn't go on, on stage or anything. But I, I ended up mixing with influential people on me at university. Peter Thompson was the sort of focal point of, of all of them. But when I look back now, I think maybe it altered my life in another way as well, which is that I, I became aware that there was a world beyond my own society, my own country, my own way of life. And, and that gave me always a broader perspective. It must be very interesting to see the position of prime minister as one of service that requires a power grab. It requires a choose me, a pick me. And then the notion of service and governing, one would hope, kicks in. But they seem to be diametrically opposed, how one gets to be prime minister and then actually governing. Oh, there's my dog. Um, sorry about that. <laughs> By the way, your question is a great question. So the thing that people find hard to understand about politicians, and, and, you know, I never felt myself like a politician. I didn't feel different from anyone else. It's just that the environment in which you're in, you realise at a certain point in time, there's a bit of it that is noble, and there's a bit of it that's skullduggery and <laughs> politics as, as all these things. Now, my theory of this is that very few people ever get to the top in politics, never mind being prime minister, unless they're driven by belief, you know, and you start in politics with belief. The trouble is you, you're always trying to implement those beliefs in this environment in which all these other ignoble elements are present. And if you believe in what you're trying to do, you can't just pretend in some elevated way, in some saintly way, because otherwise you just get devoured, right? So you, and then you never get to, to do the things you want to do. This is why usually art portrays politics as just a dark thing. But in fact, most politicians that I've ever come across go into politics wanting to do good. And obviously, oftentimes they will fall short, but it's not that they cease wanting to do good, it's the competitive nature of it and the way that what in, in normal workplaces would be sort of re relatively low-key psychological dramas in politics is played out and, and under the full glare of... A global stage, yeah. Yeah, and the choices are difficult. You know, I always say to people, the time you should trust a politician most is when they're telling you what you least want to hear. But actually, that's not how most people view politics. They trust what they do want to hear. <laughs> but that's the easy thing to do in politics. The hard thing is when you're particularly to your own supporters saying, no, I can't do that. It's not right. And when you, when you take decisions, when you decide, you divide. When you decide, you divide. Yeah. Yeah. I really can't thank you enough. I'm just so, so interesting talking to you. It's a pleasure, Minnie. All the very best. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you. Tony Blair's Institute for Global Change hopes, among other things, to offer 
in an advisory capacity, practical solutions to the challenges the world faces. Mini Questions is hosted and written by me, Mini Driver. Supervising producer, Aaron Kaufman. Producer, Morgan Lavoie. Research assistant, Marissa Brown. Original music, Sorry Baby, by Mini Driver. Additional music by Aaron Kaufman. Executive produced by me, Mini Driver. Special thanks to Jim Nicolay, Will Pearson, Addison O'Day, Lisa Castella and Anique Oppenheim at WKPR, Dela Pescador, Kate Driver and Jason Weinberg, and for constantly solicited tech support, Henry Driver. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah! And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in! Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it! Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Need an easy button to feed your baby? Baby Bretza's Formula Pro Advanced makes a perfectly mixed warm formula bottle automatically at the push of a button. No air bubbles, no fuss. Literally, choose your temp, select your ounces, push start, and you're done. Works with virtually all formulas and bottles. Say goodbye to the 3 a.m. feeding chaos and hello to this revolutionary, stress-free solution. Raising a baby is hard enough. Let Baby Bretza make feeding a breeze. Get your Formula Pro Advanced at babybretza.com.